0: You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at HopeHullUMC.org slash sermons where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. A lot of people think they want to experience the kingdom of God. Not Everyone who thinks they want to experience the kingdom of God actually wants to do what is necessary to experience the kingdom of God. We don't always realize it, and when we do, we don't always want to admit it, that we want Jesus on our terms, not His. Maybe you can think of a time in your life where you've been willing to say, hey, I'm open to what you want, Jesus, as long as it fits in my plans. One of the prominent themes that runs through the Gospel of Mark, we'll encounter it again and again and again as we work through the passages in the Gospel of Mark, is that we only get the kingdom of God on the terms that Jesus offers. Jesus encounters person after person and group after group. Whether it's the disciples, his followers, or his opponents. Who have assumptions and expectations about what it means for Jesus, for the kingdom of God. And for Jesus to be bringing the kingdom of God. And time after time after time, Jesus overturns those expectations. He dispels the presuppositions. The point shows up from the start. We don't even have to wait. In the very beginning of Mark's gospel, the first 15 verses, we see how Mark introduces us to Jesus and he shows us from the start. And the importance is amplified that this central reality shows up at the very beginning. Mark wants us to see that the road to the kingdom begins with a call to repent. Our expectations from the start get realigned around Jesus with this call to repent and believe in him. As the kingdom is announced for the first time, you get those two commands repent and believe, because the the road to the kingdom begins with a call to repent. That's the bottom line in our reading today. Now Mark wants us to understand that this kingdom news is good news. And it's good news about a person, and the person is Jesus, and Jesus is unique in some very distinct ways. And these opening verses highlight the ways that he is unique and the way that he uniquely brings the kingdom of God. You may have noticed if you've got a little background in English grammar and syntax, that Mark chapter 1 verse 1 is not even a sentence. It simply says, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And you think, where's the rest of the sentence? But that's a good translation of Mark's Greek because that first verse functions almost as a title This is what this is about. This is good news, and it's good news about Jesus, and we're about to meet Jesus, and Jesus is going to tell us about the kingdom. The fact that we're dealing with a kingdom is hinted at with that language, Son of God. We think we know what that term means. We'll find out in a few minutes. It means way more than we ever thought it meant. Now, to understand what Mark is up to, we've got to understand the backstory. And Mark lets us know that there's a backstory by introducing a couple of quotes from a couple of prophets. He mentions a little bit from Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 and another little bit from Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3. He only mentions Isaiah, you may have noticed, in uh, verse 2 as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. And then he quotes Malachi. Apparently Isaiah is the heavy hitter. And Malachi just kind of gets overlooked, and the more prominent prophet gets the name recognition. But there's two quotes. The first part's from Malachi 3.1, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. And then verse 3 is from Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 3, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now to get the backstory to understand what's going on there, we've got to understand how those two prophets are relating to the Old Testament people of God, the Hebrew people, the Israelite people. Isaiah is writing to a people in exile, estranged from their country. We need to know how they got to that point To To really see what's going on, we've got to back up a thousand years or so before Jesus comes on the scene in Galilee. And we come to a king named Solomon. Solomon was David's son. And Solomon is well known for building the temple in Jerusalem. David wanted to build the temple. His sin resulted in the consequence that he would not have that privilege, but his son would. Solomon builds the temple. And when the temple is dedicated, we are told that the glory of God descended on the inner sanctuary. This most holy place. And the glory of God that descended on the sanctuary was so prominent and so powerful and so distinct that the priests who were there ministering just had to back up. They couldn't minister before The glory of God, because it was so powerful, so fiery, so robust, so majestic. They just had to back away. And the glory of God dwelled in the temple for centuries. The problem is, the people of Israel had a sin problem. And they rebelled against God again and again and again. And he would call them to repentance, and he would send the prophets, and they would disobey, and they would go through these cycles of repentance and disobedience, and disobedience and repentance. And finally, God decided he had to do something drastic to get their attention. I wonder how many times God's had to do something drastic in our lives to get our attention. I wonder whether God is doing something drastic now to get our attention. The drastic thing then, around 600 or so years before Jesus, is that he allowed the Babylonian kingdom to invade the promised land, defeat the Israelite people, destroy the temple, and take the people out of their land into exile in Babylon. And as all that is happening, we're told in the Old Testament that the glory of God, the presence of God, the manifest presence of his glory departed from the temple. The glory that came when Solomon built it and dedicated it departed when the Babylonian people came in and destroyed As God removed his presence from his people, his people fell to their enemies and had to leave their land. And Isaiah writes in chapter 40 with a promise of comfort to a people in disaster. Comfort, O comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her, for she has served her term. Her penalty is paid. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And then we get the part that Mark quotes. A voice cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. God will return. His glory has departed. But he will return, and you will return, and you'll be together. You'll be joined once again. That's the promise of Isaiah. And Mark gathers up that story and puts that backstory story in the front end. The promise of return from exile. The problem is, the people come back to the land after a period of time, but the glory that showed up when Solomon dedicated the temple... And departed when Jerusalem fell. That glory never returned. The manifest presence of the glory of God. Visible, engaging presence of God's majesty. Never returned to the temple. They rebuilt it. The priests resumed their work. And centuries went by, hundreds of years, and the presence never came back. And Malachi says, a few hundred years later, the day is still coming. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 is what Mark picks up. I'm sending my messenger to prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come. Perhaps we could even read it, will unexpectedly come. His coming will be a surprise. It will not match your expectations. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight will come to the temple. And his coming, we are told in verse 2, is something that will be very difficult to endure. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire in a, a washer's soap. And he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver until they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. Then, and only then, the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and in the former years. Mark wants us to understand that those promises of God's return to his temple, of his presence with his people, are brought to their fulfillment, unexpected as it may be, in Jesus. And the voice who comes to prepare the way before him is his cousin, John, who we meet in verse 4. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness... Remember that word. We're going to run into it again. Wilderness. Proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. People from all over the place come out. Even though John is dressed in strange clothes and eats strange food. People from the whole Judean countryside, we are told, and from all over Jerusalem, come out to hear John's message. To be baptized by him. To declare their repentance. To seek God to cry out for revival to long for the day when He would come again and be with them visibly and in a manifest form and John says don't look at me look at the next guy I'm the messenger preparing the way and the one who is coming I'm baptizing with water the one who's coming will baptize with the Holy Spirit he will bring the Spirit of God the presence of God, to bear and to dwell among the people of God. And then we meet Jesus, don't we? And the thing that the prophets declared was coming, God's return to his people, gets zeroed in on the baptism of Jesus. Mark doesn't waste words. He doesn't give us a lot of conversation about like the other gospel writers do hey it's me I should baptize you not the other way around John says to Jesus Mark just tells us what happens this is the quick ver- this is kind of the cliff's notes almost he's very quick he moves through the narrative at a, at a, at a strong pace In those days, verse 9, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan, and as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove. Now, a lot of times we get distracted by this thing, and sometimes you've seen movies, right? Jesus gets baptized in the movies, and then all of a sudden this white dove comes flying around, and maybe the sun breaks through the clouds in a unique way. Like, The dove descent is an image. Let's not read it too literally. The point is that the Spirit is coming down and that here's the whole Trinity at one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. At the inauguration of Jesus' ministry and what we are seeing here is the fulfillment of the thing that was missing. God has returned to His people in Jesus. The Spirit is descending. God's presence is returning. But not to the building in Jerusalem, to the man, Jesus of Nazareth. In Jesus, the presence of God returns to his people. You hear the Father say of his Son, this is my beloved. You are my Son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. Jesus is the one who brings the presence of God back to Israel, and not just to Israel, to the nations, to us. Thanks be to God. Now, we are told again, this is the second time, Son of God language shows up in this passage. Mark says in chapter 1, verse 1, beginning of the good news Jesus Christ, the Son of God, And then we hear God say You are my Son the Beloved with you I am well pleased. And we hear that phrase Son of God and we think we know what it means. We think Son of God must mean Jesus is divine. Son of Mary but His Father is God. We think about the Incarnation we think about Christmas we think about Bethlehem and all those kinds of things. And those things are there. That's right. Mark is going to Show us in a variety of ways, especially in some of the narratives that he has about how Jesus cleanses the temple and some of the ways Jesus, uh, some of the miracles that Jesus performs. There is uh, evidence of Jesus's deity, the way he embodies the presence of God in those things. But the title, Son of God, is more than simply a statement that Jesus is God in the flesh. And to understand that again, we've got to go to the backstory. Again and again and again, we've got to go backwards. And look at how that language has shown up before. If we go backwards, back a thousand years or so, 2 Samuel 7, 14, King David is told, You're going to have a son. He's the one who's going to build the temple. You're not going to build it, he's going to build it. And he will be, we are told, in 2 Samuel 7.14. Just read it to you here. A son of God. God says to David, I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. Now, nobody was going around thinking that Solomon was divine or the incarnation of Yahweh, Israel's God. That language, son of God, in that instance, was a way of talking about the king, divine title. And it comes to greater fulfillment in the presence of Jesus. So Son of God is associated in 2 Samuel with the king. It's a kingly time. It comes up again even further back. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, God sends Moses to Pharaoh and says, Go tell Pharaoh that Israel is my firstborn son. And so that language, that idea of being a son of God, isn't just a person. It's the whole nation. And their vocation, their calling, their identity as a people depends on this notion of that they are this, as a kingdom, or the, as a people, are the son of God. Israel. I love Israel like a son. Moses, you go tell Pharaoh, let my son go so he can come and worship And then the son language comes up again, even further back. If we go all the way back to Genesis, chapter 5, we are told in verse 2, or verse 1, this is the list of descendants of Adam. When God created humankind, he made them in the likeness of God. Male and female he created them, and he blessed them and named them humankind, Adam, when they were created. When Adam lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his likeness. And according to his Adam, and he named him Seth. So notice that image and likeness is about what your that, that's about your children. Adam has a son in his image, in his likeness, and his name is Seth. Well, if Adam's son is in his image and likeness, and Adam is in the image and likeness of God. What does that mean about Adam? He's the first son of God. And we've already run into this idea that being a son of God involves kingship. And that shouldn't surprise us because in Genesis 1, Adam is given dominion over everything. All the beasts and the birds. He gets to name them. They belong to him. Until he yields that when he rebels against God. But all through the Old Testament, this idea of the Son of God is given to people. Whether it's Adam, who's the king over creation. Whether it's Israel, who's called to be a kingdom of priests. Whether it's Solomon, who is the king of Israel. And now, when Jesus gets that title, Mark wants us to understand... That Jesus succeeds where all of the others had failed. Jesus is going to go and be tempted in the wilderness. We'll talk about that in a minute. And where Adam was tempted by Satan and fell, Jesus will be tempted and persevere. Whereat Israel went into the wilderness for 40 years because they sinned against God and had to wander before they could go into the promised land, Jesus would go into the wilderness for 40 days and be faithful, Son of God, fulfilling the vocation of the nation. And like Solomon, Jesus will receive the throne. Mark wants us to understand that, these, that Jesus is, yes, fully God, but he is also the king, the human king who God has has designated, anointed to reign over all things. And this bit about the wilderness is a snapshot way of saying Jesus has authority over every realm of creation. Notice what Mark says about the temptation of Jesus. He goes into the wilderness. The Spirit drives him into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days. We've already said that kind of alludes to Israel's 40 years of wandering. And he was tempted by Satan. Now, Mark doesn't go into the detail Matthew goes into about, you know, turn the stones into the bread or go up to the highest place and throw yourself off. Mark just gives us the snapshot. He was tempted. He didn't fall. And then he has this weird thing Jesus was with the wild beasts. Now, when I read that, I think of David, right? The king who goes out to the hillside outside of the city into the wilderness and he's fighting lions and trying to protect his sheep. Jesus is out there with the wild beasts, but also think of Adam, whose job it was to name the animals as an expression of his authority. And so here's Jesus. And he's at peace with these wild things. The rest of us would be scared. We would be fearful if there are lions running around and things like that. But Jesus is just with them. There's no sense that there's animosity. There's no sense that there's it's no sense that it's dangerous for him here. He's with them. He's doing what Adam failed to do. The angels minister to him. And Mark gives us this snapshot of Jesus who is served by spiritual beings and who is at peace with created physical creatures and who is a victor over the tempter. And in three quick phrases, we get this rich picture of Jesus who perseveres against temptation to bring the kingdom the wrong way, who is at peace with the creation that he has made and he now reigns over, which is why we'll hear about the kingdom in just a minute, and who is served by the angels, which is a theme that comes up multiple times in the New Testament about how the angels are present to serve God's creatures, his human creatures made in his image. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, don't you know we'll judge angels? And the author of the Hebrews says that God has made human beings a little lower than the angels for a time, but there's an exaltation that's coming. And we see all of that wrapped up in Jesus. Jesus is doing everything that God wanted humanity to do, and we failed to do it. Let me say that again. Everything we fail at. Resisting Satan, caring for the creation, overseeing and judging the angels. Every aspect of the human vocation where we've failed, Jesus fulfills. He calls the shots in this kingdom. Jesus calls, the the kingdom only comes on his turn. Mark wants us to see this rich, multifaceted image of that kingdom. The question then becomes, how we enter the kingdom? Because that's the next thing Jesus says. John gets arrested, and apparently that launches Jesus' ministry. Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news, the gospel. Right? And you need to know this about the word gospel. Some of your translations may say gospel, some may say good news. Same word in Greek. And the word in Greek, before uh before Mark ever used it, was used by the Roman Empire to announce when a new Caesar would take the throne, or maybe Caesar's birthday. Thanks be to our savior, the Caesar, who has brought peace and happiness and security. Like Those are the kinds of things they would say about their king. And now Mark says, let me tell you about the real king. (laughs) Caesar wishes he was a king like this king, like Jesus. So Jesus starts proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. And we should be anticipating that because after all the spirit has descended. The glory and presence of God is showing up in Jesus. Jesus is persevering against the Satan. He's living into the human vocation. He's acting like the king. He's caring over the creation. He's naming and looking after these wild beasts and they're not after him. They're just, he's just with them and the angels are serving him. And he's doing all of these things that human kings ought to do but have never actually done very well. And now he says the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel. And that's the centerpiece. That's the thing. Mark says, look, it's the beginning of the good news. The good news starts here. With Jesus. With His kingdom. But the good news only comes on His terms. And His terms are caught up in two commandments. Repent and believe. Because Mark wants us to understand that the road to the kingdom begins with the call to repent. The road to the kingdom, to life with Jesus, to experiencing His joy and His bounty and His goodness and His glory. His presence! God is present in Jesus. And if we want to be a part of that, His reign and His rule, starts with repentance and is followed by trust and belief. Before we talk about repentance and belief let's be very clear on what Mark does not mean when he talks about the kingdom of God. A lot of people notice that Matthew talks about the kingdom of heaven and Mark talks about the kingdom of God and when we catch that word heaven we kind of import that into what Mark says sometimes. And we think, well, he's talking about how you go to heaven when you die. The kingdom of God is just where you go when you die. That's manifestly not what Mark means by this. Jesus says, the kingdom of God has come near. And he embodies that kingdom. It's about The kingdom of God is about what it looks like when God is king, isn't it? Like, take a minute to think about what would the world look like if God, in his kingship, were obvious and manifest. I suspect it would look a whole lot like Jesus' life. The people of God would be caring for people. And there would be mercy, and there would be justice, and there would be salvation. If you want to know what it looks like for God to be king, look at Jesus. But if God's going to be king, it means God is king on His terms, not ours. That's what the kingdom of God is all about, and that's why the first command is repent. Now the word repent simply means turn around. So if you're walking in one direction and you repent, imagine the about face. You turn around and go the other way. You're walking away from Jesus. Jesus says, come on back towards me. Turn and come. So you turn away from self-rule, self-determination, self-worship, Jesus says, turn away from your agenda, turn away from your sin, turn away from your self-love and trust me. Follow me. Give yourself to me. This is my kingdom. And this is the place where you get whole. And this is the place where you are made new. I said a few moments ago that the word wilderness keeps coming up in these first few verses of Mark's gospel. Again, if we're thinking about the backstory, we understand the implications of the wilderness, don't we? When Adam rebelled against God, what happened? He had to leave the garden, didn't he? When you leave a garden, you wind up in the wilderness. When Israel, the Hebrew people, were... In the wilderness, having been rescued from slavery, they had to stay there an extra 40 years because they didn't trust God to deliver the promised land to them. They didn't trust God to keep His promises. And it meant an extra 40 years outside of the promised land, in the wilderness. So John the Baptist goes out in the wilderness to proclaim his gospel of repentance and Jesus Goes out in the wilderness to give us the first image of his kingdom. Resisting the tempter and governing the created world, the beasts, the wild beasts, and the spiritual world, the angels. And he goes to the wilderness, brothers and sisters, because that's where we are, apart from him. If you're not in the kingdom, you're in the wilderness. If you've not repented and you're not trusting Jesus and entered into the kingdom, you're in the wilderness. And there's no way out of the wilderness into the kingdom apart from the grace and the initiative of Jesus. Like, you're not going to just wander into the kingdom. He's got to come get you. Which is precisely what happens in the Gospel of Mark. The kingdom doesn't start in Jerusalem, it starts outside Jerusalem. The kingdom doesn't start in the temple, it starts in the wilderness. It doesn't start in the garden, it starts outside where the wild beasts are. And if you want to get from the wilderness to the kingdom, the road starts with repentance. Now We're going to learn more what that means all the way through the Gospel. For those who are opposed to Jesus, who start plotting his death very early in the narrative, repentance would look like surrendering their vision of the kingdom to Jesus. He's hanging out with the wrong people. He's doing the wrong kinds of things. We're in charge of this kingdom, not that guy. Self-rule. Self-determination. I'm going to have my way no matter what, even if I have to kill the Son of God. Jesus says, you want part of the kingdom? Repent of that. Jesus' own disciples are going to have to repent. They have no idea what his vision of the kingdom looks like. And time after time after time, he will overturn their expectations and upend their expectations and just obliterate their expectations and they will be confused and they will be in the dark and they will not until he brings them to where they need to be and that happens when we trust him this is this this is faith this is trust but it's not just kind of you know something that happens in my head and it's not just kind of this I'm going to accept it with no evidence. That's not what Jesus means when he talks about faith. What he means is do you have confidence in me to do for you what you cannot do for yourself? Faith in Jesus is not, I'm going to trust really hard so that Jesus will like me. Faith in Jesus is, Jesus, I don't have what it takes. You have to do it. I don't have the power to get free from sin. You've got to set me free. I don't have the power to break those addictions. You've got to break the addictions. I don't have the power to reconcile those relationships. Your spirit in me has got to do that. I don't have the power. You do. And time after time again in the Gospel of Mark, we'll see it next week when we gather, read through the rest of chapter 1, very quickly he demonstrates his power over demonic powers. He demonstrates his power over disease. He demonstrates his power all in so many ways. And everyone is supposed to realize we don't have what it takes. But he does. But if we want to get in on what he's got, we've got to turn. The road to the kingdom begins with the command, the call to repent. Surrender to Jesus. And here's the thing. What we'll find when we do that, as we read through the gospel, this will become apparent again and again. We will find that as we turn from ourselves and follow Jesus and allow Him to call the shots, allow Him to be the King that His title, Son of God, says He is, when we allow Him to be the King, He will begin to reproduce His character in our lives. Right? For Mark, repent and believe is not a one-time gig. Alright, now you're good. You can get back to what you used to be. Up. Like if you've repented, you're not going the way you used to go. If you've repented, your life begins to look different. You don't do the same things. You don't say the same things you may Maybe you're not hanging out with the same people. Your life changes because you're trusting Jesus and not yourself. You're trusting Jesus and not the system, whatever it is. Trusting Jesus. And when we do that, his commands and his love and his self giving presence begins to infiltrate us and transform us into the kind of people who live out the character that he embodies and the values of his kingdom. The most unexpected reality of this kingdom when we get to the end is that it will come through the cross. The crown that Jesus wears when he comes into his kingdom isn't a crown of gold, it's a crown of thorns. And that atoning sacrifice, that self-giving love, that I care more about you than I do my own comfort, than my life. Jesus says, trust me. So I'm wondering, for all of us, as we've Heard Mark's and seen Mark's portrayal of Jesus the King, the Son of God, the new Adam, the new Israel, the new Solomon, the one who brings the presence of God into our presence. I'm wondering what those areas of self-rule are that we need to yield to Jesus, of which we need to repent and trust Him to rule. Maybe you want to take a moment wherever you are in your homes or elsewhere. And just say to Jesus here are the places where I've attempted to maintain control of my life where I have been on the throne of this kingdom and I want to offer my kingdom to you because my kingdom is frail and fragile and your king, your kingdom is the real Wherever you are, maybe you just want to pray that prayer and offer yourself to turn away from self-rule and give yourself to Jesus' rule, to trust Him, to have confidence in Him. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org/sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.